0: We've got a couple of handouts in there coming. So Roger will hand those. We'll to get those handed out just as soon as, um, as soon as they're done. And basically, one of them is just the outline for today's class, <clears throat> and the other is a uh, is a map. And you may very well have a map in your Bible that you want to uh, look at. Or use uh, this map has several things on it that just want to make sure as we go through this. So if you just kind of fold that map and put it in your Bible, bring it with you uh, every Sunday. If you don't have it, we'll make we can make extra copies. I'll carry it in my uh, I'll carry it in my in my deal here. Um, so if somebody comes and they don't have the map, we can get it to them. So as we as, as we talked about the opening chapters of the book of Exodus. As you read down through that first chapter, the first thing that you notice is that things have changed. And things have changed in some ways not for the better. And so it probably behooves us to step back into the book of Genesis, just a few chapters, and find out what was going on. Because we know that Joseph was serving in the house of Pharaoh. He was in a relatively high position with Pharaoh because of the things that he had done. And I mean, we don't have to recount all of those things, but he interpreted the dreams for Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh placed him in a position of high authority. Now that's, that's odd to me. Um, Because for an, Abru, which, which is what the Egyptians called the Hebrews, and Abru, A-B-R-E, they're Ebreus. For the Hebrews, someone to be that close to the Pharaoh was extremely unusual. And so there is, I think, a reason for that, and I think this is because when Joseph was in the house of Pharaoh or ruling uh, the land as a co-regent, as it were, with Pharaoh, this was the time of what's called the Hyksos Kings. H Y K-S-O-S, the Hyksos Kings. And if you divide that into two, if you divide that into two sections, the word H Y K, Hyk means shepherd, and SOS means king. So this was the time of the shepherd kings and when you get your map in the book of Genesis when all of these people and Jacob and his family all came into Egypt where did Pharaoh tell them that they could live where did he send them to live because of the cattle that they had because of the animals that they had they needed grazing space where did he tell them that they could settle Goshen. the land of Goshen so as you get your map if you look in the north east corner of the lower kingdom and you all are familiar with the fact that Egypt is divided into the upper and the lower kingdom and it's different than you would think where is the upper kingdom it's at the bottom part okay the upper kingdom is at the bottom part because the cataracts that form the Nile River flow south to north okay so the upper kingdom is where everything starts, and that is where a majority of the pharaohs had their residences where they ruled from. But there were many pharaohs that ruled in the lower kingdom. And this is where the Hyksos ruled. They ruled in this land, the area where you know Cairo, you know the area of the, uh, of the pyramids today. That's the, that's the lower kingdom, or the I'm sorry, that's the upper kingdom. That's the, that's the, no, that's the lower. I sometimes get it confused myself, because up is down and down is up. So the, the, upper, the upper kingdom and the lower kingdom are the two divisions of the land of Egypt. And so during the time of the Hyksos, or the shepherd kings, the Hebrews grew in extremely, at an extremely rapid rate. Now, I'm not going to get into any dates. We're going to talk about some dates at a a point in time. And that can be a whole lesson on its own. But as you go through the literature, if you're curious about this stuff, and you go through the literature, you're going to find that there are conflicts between scholars. And sometimes the conflicts make sense, and sometimes the conflicts don't make sense. And so as we kind of parse through this, I'm going to throw... The Hyksos kings into the era of ruling from about 1650 to 1550 AD. They ruled for about uh, they ruled for about a hundred years. They were then overthrown. They were then overthrown by the Egyptians, who took back the Hyksos, or t- took the Hyksos rulers out, took them away, and put them under subjection. Sound familiar? And so this time, the Hyksos kings were in a position of authority when Joseph was in a place where he was ruling as a co-regent with with the pharaoh. Um, In about 1556 is the time that the Hyksos were, were finally defeated. So their rule lasted for about 100 years, and this ended about 30 years before Moses was born. So it's not unusual for us to read in the first few verses of the book of Exodus that when Joseph died, all his brothers of that generation, verse 7 says, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Now, remember how many people came into Egypt when Jacob and his family came in? How many came in? 70, 77. Those numbers vary also. If you're going to count Joseph already being in Egypt, so you're going to have varying numbers. By this time, and you look at the you look at the uh, you look at the the rates of uh, reproduction among the Hebrew people. Remembering that Jacob had eleven sons in seven years, the number of people, because the people of Israel were fruitful and multiplied, and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Verse seven. And so Pharaoh took notice of this in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who knew not Joseph. So there is a king that will come to the throne, that this period of time has passed. And when the Hyksos were overthrown, the Egyptians made every effort to totally erase their history from the land of Egypt, much as they did with the heretic king Agnaten when he ruled much later the father of Tutankhamun, um, when he ruled, when he was overthrown, Egypt obliterated all of his obelisks, everything related to him. So we have very few relics. We have very few uh, remaining relics of, of those rules as we, have, um, as we have very few indications or relics that remain of the Hyksos uh, shepherd kings who were of a Semitic origin. So they were, uh, they were from the land of Canaan And as the people settled in Goshen, that gave them a very close proximity. And so the Egyptians now become very interested in the fact that this group that lives up in Goshen has everybody got their map? Everybody got their map? Can you see the land of Goshen? Okay. Northeast corner of the Nile Delta. Who doesn't have a map? Oh, okay. So that land of Goshen is in very close proximity to the trade routes that take them up through the land of the Philistines and up into Palestine, what we know as as the the, uh, land of Israel, the land of Palestine, whatever you choose to call it. Call it anything but the holy lands. It's not that. So when the Hyksos were defeated, the Egyptians made every attempt to totally destroy everything that had to do with these folks. And this new Pharaoh that came in, the new king over Egypt, he did not know Joseph, verse 8. And so he tells the people, Behold, they are too mighty, and they are too much, or they're too big. There are too many of them, and they're too mighty for for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if a war breaks out, they join their enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So you can see that they can call on other peoples from the land of Canaan to come down and fight with them if if they were going to present this threat to Pharaoh. And so as time goes along... They are taught, or they are told by, uh, they are told by the, the Pharaoh, uh, that their taskmasters are set over them, giving them heavy burdens, and they built Pharaoh's cities. Uh, two of them were Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. So there's more and more of the Hebrews now, and the more they spread abroad, and they are in dread. Verse 12 of the people of Israel. So. They subject them, they put them in subjection to slavery. This is the story that we're most familiar with. Uh, The king of Egypt goes to the Hebrew midwives. This is an interesting, this is an interesting couple of verses because he goes to two Hebrew midwives. And there are some who will argue that two Hebrew midwives for the number of people that were there, that's probably not even, probably not even a close estimate to how many midwives there were, but... He goes to the Hebrew midwives and he tells them, if it's a female, you let it live. If it's a male, you'll kill it. But the midwives, verse 17, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. And so we we see this this sets us all up for the birth of Moses in about 1526 B.C. Now that's a round number depending on what scholar you read. Some will say 1520, some will say 1526. It does not matter. Um, if you're, if, mm-hmm. right. as a people, yeah, there probably was some reference to that when they, when they came into the land, but they certainly did not come into the land in the, land in the sheer numbers that they are now. now right. Now they're regarded as foreigners. But they understand now that this, this group of people, this, this Hebrew people, are growing in exponential numbers. Because we, we look at the Exodus and we see uh, the numbers in the 640 or 680 thousand men. Doesn't count the kids, doesn't count the wives. And if some of them had more than one wife with more than a certain number of kids, you could be looking, and I've seen the estimates anywhere from 2.3 to 3.7 million people. And that does not take into account the house of Levi because the house of Levi was not numbered with the people. So, you know, this number of people is growing exponentially. And they're getting, and, and Pharaoh and the Egyptians are seeing this people grow and grow and grow and become more and more of a threat. And so they put, them under, they put them under oppression. But even putting them under oppression, verse 12, the more they're oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the Egyptians are in dread of the people, the people of Israel. And so now they're going to have them construct or, uh, you know, making bricks. Uh, At some point they're going to say, uh, you know, you can't even have the straw that we've supplied for you before. You're going to have to use, you're going to have to go out and pick the straw and also make the bricks, but don't decrease the number. The numbers have to stay the same. This is later on. So God dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. This is is at least three or four times in the first chapter we're talking about these people multiplying and growing very strong, giving credence to the fact that these people are growing at at a very alarming rate, alarming to the Egyptians. So Pharaoh commanded the people, uh, said to all the people in verse 22, Every son that is born of the Hebrews, you'll cast it into the Nile, and you shall let every Uh, child live. So chapter 2 now takes us to the birth of Moses, and we look at the birth of Moses. Um, It says, now a man from the house of Levi, okay, and what is his name? Amram. His name is Amram, Exodus 6 and verse 20 tells us who that is. Amram, and he is of the house of Levi. He's a Levite, and his wife's name is? Jochebed, his kinswoman. Now, they already have two children. The oldest is Miriam. Miriam is the oldest. She's 13 when Moses is born. Okay. And they also have another son. His name is, and he's three when Moses is born. So anytime we're talking about Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, we talk about them in ages of... Moses is the youngest. Aaron is three years older than Moses, and Miriam is 13 years older than Moses. This is why she was put in charge of taking care of him, because she was old enough to do that sort of thing. She was uh, of, a, of the oldest of the, the oldest of the group, and so she hid him. We all know the story of hiding him in the, hiding him in the bulrushes. We all know the story of uh, the Pharaoh's uh, the daughter of Pharaoh. Who that is? You can, it's left to, it's left to uh, conjecture based on, you know, whether you're looking at this from a certain timeline. Uh, I tend to believe that it's, it's, that it's Hatshepsut. Um, She was a co-regent with the Pharaoh. When Pharaoh died, she went into power. This would be while Moses was gone, that 40 years. Um, But, you know, that's that's just, that's just one. Uh, Moses being born in either 1526 or 1520, however you want to look at that, his daughter would have been about his daughter, uh, the Pharaoh's daughter would have been about 15 at this time, and so she goes down to the water to bathe. She sees the child, and uh, she takes pity on him, and she calls for a Hebrew woman to nurse the child. And we know the story: the child grows older. She brought him up as he brought him up as Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, "I drew him out of the water." All right, so. If we are to look at the pharaonic line, the pharaoh that – I have to get my notes here. Oh, I don't have my notes because I gave them to Roger. (laughs) Well, it's all right. Um, So the pharaonic line at this point in time is probably Amenhotep I, now that's just that's just what I that's just what I've deduced from the research that I've done. Uh, you know, depending on where you put where you put your chronologies in line with the with the story, there is any there is any number of combinations. But I get to an endpoint with mine due to the death of the firstborn, and so that's the one I'm going to use. You feel free. you feel free to make the choices you, you want to make? Does it matter? No, it doesn't matter. It adds a little color to the history. It allows us to look at, it allows us to look at this possibly from some other standpoints. But, um, you know, what we have to do is we have to find a pharaoh who lost his firstborn, right? Because that's the, that's, the, that's the final plague that allowed them to be free. Yes, ma'am? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. And, and it comes down to whether you're, and, and I was going to, I mentioned this later on, but it depends on whether you take a 13th century view or a 15th century view. So if you take the early 13th century view, obviously the pharaohs are going to be different. If you take a 15th century view, which is what I'm taking for the purposes of this class, and you know, you don't have to agree with with the view that I take. You do your own research, you come up with it, because there are enough there are enough there are enough things to contemplate in the Book of Exodus where there can be where there can you know the the tiles can shift based on the years. But if you have some if you have some real concrete lines like which Pharaoh had which which Pharaoh had a son who predeceased him which which Pharaoh had a son who was the firstborn that died well that's a pretty you know that may not be the only one but that's certainly one that needs a little further investigation so you can drive let me tell you you can drive yourself crazy you can drive yourself crazy doing this so I don't suggest that but you know just go if you if you're curious about this about the timelines and things like that <clears throat> just go and Go and and look at this for yourself, and you'll see uh, that uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, like she said, there there are many different ones. In fact, if you look on your map, if you look on your map, there are multiple dotted lines. There are multiple dotted lines that show the Exodus, multiple dotted lines that show uh, their journey out of Egypt. And you'll notice on your map, if you're looking at it, there are some things that are mentioned in the Bible and you go down to that city, and there's a question mark beside it. And there's a question mark there because we really don't know that that's where that was. And so you follow those you follow those various paths of the Exodus, and we'll follow one particular we'll follow one particular one that I feel like um, is is valid. And certainly you don't. Uh, you don't have to follow that. Uh, we talked about the fact in the uh, introductory class that Mount Sinai, as you will see it on the southern portion of the Sinai Peninsula, there, Mount Sinai has a question mark by it. Well, I don't believe that's where Mount Sinai is. That's just that's just what I've that's what I've that's what I've researched. I don't believe I take a, a contrarian view to that. I don't believe that's where Mount Sinai is. That is the traditional place of Mount Sinai because Saint Catherine. St. Catherine's mission is there, and St. Catherine's mission is there because Constantine's mother, Queen Helena, said that this was where Moses delivered the law, and so they built a shrine there, and that's why. So it's called the traditional Mount Sinai. My research tells, I don't believe that's where Mount Sinai is because when Moses flees to the land of Midian, and you see where the land of Midian is, the land of Midian is located in current day what? What's there? Where's Midian, in, what's Midian in today? Saudi Arabia. It's in Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia doesn't like Christians coming into their lands and excavating and, and, and doing stuff. Because they're a Muslim country. They're an Islamic country. But there is there is compelling evidence, I feel, to a different route for the children of Israel to exodus and to get back to the land of Midian. And we'll talk about that when we get to that section. So, we have Moses born. We have Moses raised in the house of Pharaoh. Um, We now move to chapter 2, and we talk about the fact that um, Moses now is of an age where he is in Pharaoh's household. He looks out on the people. He sees their burdens. And he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Now, how did he come to the realization that he was a Hebrew? I don't know. Did his mother tell him? Okay. Could his his mother have told him? Could Miriam have told him? We're not told. We're not told. The Hebrew people, did they look different than the Egyptians? Such that he wondered about himself and maybe asked his mother. We're not told. We're simply told that he saw an Egyptian beating one of his people. So he is aware at this moment in time that he is a Hebrew. And that causes quite a bit, if it it did anything, it would cause quite a bit of conflict in his mind. Well, I'm an Egyptian, but I'm a Hebrew. And certainly certainly that's not something that he would have wanted to go and ask Pharaoh about because Pharaoh had gone through this gone through this time of killing all the Hebrew male children and so he might not have gotten a response that he wanted from that so he kills he kills a Hebrew you know we, we don't we've, we very seldom talk about the fact that Moses murdered someone he, he's a murderer sure he knew did he did he knew what he had done? Did he knew what he had done was wrong? Yeah, he did, because he looked left and right and made sure nobody had seen him and he missed somebody because somebody did see him. And he hid the guy and he hid the dead guy in the sand. So he was out the next day. Two Hebrews are fighting with one another. They're struggling together. They're fighting. They're in a fight. And he goes and breaks up the fight. Why did you strike your companion? And the guy turns to him and said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Did you, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? That's one of those oh boy moments, right? Because somebody knows what you've done and they found you out. Moses was afraid and thought surely this thing is known. What happens when Pharaoh hears about it? He sought to kill him. And so Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he went to the land of Midian. So you can see how far it is from uh, the capital, which was at, uh, I don't remember where it was at this point in time. I think it was probably was at Memphis at this point in time. I'd have to check on that. I'm not sure about that. Anyway, he fled from the face of Pharaoh, and he went to Midian. So we know how he, we know how he got to Midian. You can, see, uh, you can see the land, you can see the dotted line that le- leads over to Elath. And he goes down into the land of Midian. At no point did he cross the. Uh, no, at no point did he cross this por- portion of the Red Sea, uh, the Gulf of Aqaba, which plays an important part in the Exodus. Uh, no point did he cross the Gulf of Aqaba. Or we're told that he just fled to the land of Midian. Yes, sir. Yeah, he was 40 when he fled. He was 40 when he fled. So how how old was he when he died? Remember? He was 120 years old, so his life is divided into three 40-year phases, right? 40 years, birth to 40 years in the land of Egypt. He flees at age 40 into the land of Midian. How long does he stay there? 40 years. Then he comes back, and the next 40 years are spent getting the children of Israel out. And finally, uh, Deuteronomy 34, he's able to look over into the promised land, but not go over because he did not do what God told him. So, as we look at this, when he would have fled to the land of Midian, if we look back time wise through this, it was probably under the reign of Tutmosis II. Tutmosis II, when Moses killed, he killed the Egyptian and fled to Midian. Probably Tutmosis II, because Tutmosis III is the Pharaoh of the Exodus. if you use use the timeline that I'm using. If you're a 13th century person, going to be a different timeline. If you're a 15th century person, it lines up fairly well with Moses III. That would have made Hatshepsut, who was a co-regent while he was gone those 40 years, she was a co-regent, but she has since died also. She ruled while while Moses was gone, and she was the first uh, female pharaoh to rule. And she was... uh, from all the historical accounts that I can read about here, she was quite a conniving woman. Apparently, she would just kill someone in the pharaonic line just randomly to keep them from coming to the throne so she could stay in power. She was, she was quite a young lady. So anyway, but she's dead by now. He's over, in, he's over in the land of Midian. So now we turn our attention away from Egypt for the next 40 years um, for, uh, for Moses to be in the land of Midian. And so we find that the priest of Midian has seven daughters. And if you've watched the Ten Commandments and all these all these movies about this, you know you know that he he helps them out. Uh, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. So for all intents and purposes, he does not look like a Hebrew. He she said there's he's an Egyptian. He's not a Hebrew. So I don't know, did he look like a Hebrew? Did he look like an Egyptian? Not sure what he looked like, but all that we know is that he delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and drew his water for us and watered the flocks. So their father, the priest of Midian, remind me of his name. Who Who is the priest of Midian? Jethro. He comes comes back later on once the children are are over there. So um, he says to his daughters, where is he? Call him that we may eat bread. He was content to dwell with them, and he gave Moses his daughter Zippurah. And verse 21 of chapter 2. And so Moses is content to dwell with them. She gives birth to a son, calls his name Gershom, because because his name is I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God hears their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And so, while Moses is in the land, he's keeping his flocks on his father in law Jethro priest of Midian and he led his locks to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb Horeb the mountain of the mountain of God very very interesting that Horeb is the mountain of God verse 2 of chapter 3 says and the angel of the Lord who is this It's the pre-incarnate Christ Angel of the Lord comes to him out of a flame, out of a burning bush that is burned but does not, is not consumed. Story we all know all too well. Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. I am, he says, I am, not I was, I am. The God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. have heard their cries. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egypt. Now watch this next phrase. And to bring them up out of that land to a land, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So God's telling him that he's going to bring the people of Israel, the house of Israel, he's going to bring them out of bondage, and he's going to put them smack dab in the middle of all these other people. He's going to put them right smack dab in the middle of a bunch of pagans. That's the goal. That's the end product is to put the children of Israel right in the middle of all these pagan peoples. And so we don't hear much more about this until we get over into the latter stages of this book and then um, on into uh, the book of Joshua, let's say, where they go in and they take the land. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I've seen their oppression. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so Moses says, yes, Lord, I understand. I'm on the road. I'll be there. I'm starting out there right tomorrow. I'm going. I'm going. Let me pack a few things, and I'm headed out. Right? Excuses, excuses, excuses. No different than us. He's no different than any of us. Always an excuse. What's his first excuse? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Well, first of all, you know how that whole system works. You lived in it for 40 years. You know how how the, the court of Pharaoh operates. So you're the good person, you're the best person to go because you know how all this works. Even though the Pharaoh, when you left, is now dead, and the one, who the one who succeeded him is dead, and there's now another one in place, you know how all this works. But God said, I'll be with you, and she'll be a sign for you, that I have sent you, and you have brought the people out of Egypt to serve God on what? On what mountain? This mountain. This mountain. He's in Midian. And God wants him to bring the people back to serve on This mountain. I'm sorry That was going to be the sign, but the sign is that other mountain over on Sinai is not the mountain that he wants them to come to. He wants them to, He wants him to bring the people back to so that they can worship on this mountain. And that's the key. One of the keys is the fact that he's going to bring the children back to this mountain, and this mountain <laughs> is in Midian. It's not on the Sinai Peninsula. And that opens up a whole new panoply of, of exploration and, and looking into finding the mountain that that possibly would be the one where the, the the children of Israel gathered at the foot of, and Moses went up into and got the law and all this. I firmly believe that the Mount Sinai on the Sinai Peninsula is not the mountain of God. It's not the mountain of God. Yes, sir. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very I think that's a very fair I think that's a very fair statement. I think, that's, I think that's perfectly fine. Um, that's exactly correct. <coughs> yes, they did. Yeah. So right. And Solomon, uh, just as a point of, just as a point, uh, up there at Elath, which is the which is the northernmost part of the Gulf of Aqaba, that is where Solomon put his fleet into the water. He, that's where he built his ships, his ships of war. That's where he put his ships in the water in the Gulf of Aqaba. And so a lot of this this area area is very well known. And there is the possibility that that, that Solomon put Stele at the place where he thought the the, the children of Israel crossed the Gulf of Aqaba to get back to the land of Midian to come to the, the mountain of God. So, I've sent you, that you have brought the people out of Egypt, verse 12, you shall serve God on this mountain. It does not say you will serve God on Mount Sinai. It does not serve, say you will serve God on another mountain. It says you will serve God on this mountain, this mountain that he is on right now. Then Moses said to God, here comes excuse number two. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to, they sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? Who shall I say to them? What shall I say to them? And God responds, Ego, I -I -I. I am that I am. You tell them that the I am has sent you. We talked about this last week. Christ uses these same words. Except you you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. Very powerful pronouncement from God. The self-existent one. That's exactly what that means. Ego, I. The one who has no beginning, who has no end. He is self-existent. He has always been. He always will be. There is never a time that he was. He always is. He's always in the present. So say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations And you and the children and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord, our God. But I know, God says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do after he after that he will after that he will let you go. Now, does God have hands? Does God have hands? God is a what? He's a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God does not. This is anthropomorphizing. This is called when we see, when we see something about God, like he stretched out his finger or he, used, he uses his hand in some way. He reaches his hand down to man. That's anthropomorphizing God. God does not have hands. He's a spirit. Okay, but this is a way for people to understand it's a way for you to understand that God understands the creation, the people that he's created. And he speaks to us in a way that we, that we can understand it. And so he says he'll, he'll bring them out with a mighty hand. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. This is, this, is a, this is an important part because he's going to give them favor in the sight of the people of Egypt. And when you go, you will shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor. And any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. So how does Moses respond? The beginning of chapter four. Third excuse. They're not going to believe me. I mean, look at me. I've been 40 years in the land of Midian. I'm, I'm not. They will not believe me or listen to my voice. They'll say, the Lord did not appear to you. And so God gives him a couple signs. He says, what's that in your hand? It's says staff. Just throw it down on the ground. What does it do? It becomes a serpent. Now, it's very interesting. He says he throws it on the ground, becomes a serpent, and Moses ran from it. This part of the world, there are some extremely bad snakes, bite-wise they will they will flat they will flat put you in the ground they're they're very poisonous moses ran from it natural reaction the lord said to moses put out your hand and catch it how catch it by the head no you catch it by the tail you go to catch it by the head you're going to get bit catch it by the tail which brings up an interesting question when we get to the court of pharaoh when he throws the staff down and it becomes a serpent what do the magicians do? They do the same thing, and what happens? Did you realize if you hold a snake in a certain way that that snake will become straight as a, straight as a board? It's a magic trick. Magicians today do that same trick. They'll have a snake, and they'll grab it in a certain way, and that snake, snake will just become stiff as a board. Did you know that? That's a magic trick. But it's no magic, but it's no magic When Moses' serpent eats those serpents, that's no magic trick. Their tricks are magic tricks. His trick is by the power of God. That just gives you a little preview. So, we've got a couple minutes left before the bell. And we'll stop there. And believe it or not, I'm going to give you a homework assignment. (laughs) Yeah, y'all won't even come next week.